from the Tomato Free Studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another squirrely episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Are evil squirrels eating your tomatoes and tree fruits before you can? On today's show, we'll reveal several ways to try and stop these long-tailed servants of Satan. Plus, a researcher from the famed Smithsonian Institution explains the connection between dangerously bitter squash and woolly mammoths. And of course, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and insightfully ironic insinuations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than you finally tasting some of your own homegrown tomatoes because you got wise with water right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we got a jam-packed show for you today, cats and kittens. In the question of the week, we're going to help you handle evil squirrels that are attacking your tomatoes and tree fruits. And in a very special interview, we will explore this topic, a fascinating topic of bitter fruits, uh, bitter cucumbers, bitter gourds, uh, bitter uh, pumpkins, and we'll take it back to the Ice Age with a professor from the Smithsonian Institute who's going to explain it all to us. A lot to get done, so we better hop right to your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Don, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you here, Don. Where are you located? Sir, I'm in Cherry Hill in South Jersey. Okay, right over the Benjamin Franklin Bridge. Yes, sir. All right, what can we do for Don in the Garden State? We are growing in containers <clears throat> eggplants. We're growing two varieties. One is a Japanese variety, mm -hmm. and the other is what I call the traditional eggplant. Right, the um, basic variety name is Black Beauty, I believe. Yes, that sounds like it, exactly. And we're frustrated. We don't know when to pick it. Well, that is a great question, especially for this time of year. And if you were talking about a watermelon, we, we could be on the phone for hours discussing ancient rituals because the last thing you want to do is baby a watermelon along for months and months and then pick it like three days before it turns red inside. But Correct. eggplant are very interesting in the sense that they are exactly like summer squash, like zucchini and those crookneck squashes. Uh, eggplant can be eaten at any time. And, oh, really? Yes. Um, if you can see it, you can eat it. So, you know, same thing for string beans. A lot of people um, let their string beans get big on the vine. And those are the string beans, or maybe you call them green beans or snap beans, that they sell in the yes. supermarket in the, giant, in the giant dump boxes for 99 cents a pound. But over in the gourmet section, they've got these long, slender string beans that don't have any pods 
pushing out and they're sweeter and they don't they're not stringy they're the same string beans the okay. little ones were just picked young and there are a number of crops that again if you can see it you can eat it and with many of those the smaller the better think of snow peas in the spring or snap peas in the spring you don't okay. want them, you don't want them to get too big or they'll get stringy same with green beans in the summer same with zucchini so the old test of feeling it and pressing in and seeing if there's something solid is not really true well uh, you know the the black beauties the big italian glossy black purple eggplants people like to get those to a good size because you're going to, you know, you're going to fry them up or do something like exactly. that. And you like big slices. But the Asian variety, and what colors are your Asian eggplants? I mean, some of these things are so beautiful. Uh, they're a cross between purple and brown. Okay, so they're kind of variegated. Yes. Because there's some beautiful, almost neon varieties of these plants. But especially those, you can pick them when they're young. And there's still plenty of time in the season. You pick these things when they're young, before the seeds inside have a chance to fully develop. The plant, okay. the plant will keep pumping out little baby ones. So yes. technically, you can get like four harvests from each plant. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Because, again, the smaller they are, I mean, you want them to be a decent size, you know, because you're probably, again, going to coin them or do something. But exactly. you're, you're, you're going to find that the smaller you pick them, the more likely you can eat them skin and all. The skin, okay. the skin won't ha have a chance to get tough. Um, they will be sweeter than a fully grown eggplant. And most importantly, they'll avoid that bitterness that you well, often get. Well, it looks like get. we're going to have eggplant for supper tonight. Absolutely. Just, uh, you know, with eggplant and with bell peppers um, and hot peppers as well, very important to harvest with a pair of scissors and not your hand. You don't want to snap them off because you, okay. you can damage the plant. But go out with scissors and make a clean cut and enjoy your eggplant tonight and the eggplant will produce new flowers and talk about beautiful how beautiful are the flowers on an eggplant totally agree they are they're they're like little orchids i love there's some plants that i grow that the flowers just amaze me and i think eggplant in terms of a summer garden are the most beautiful but yeah you can pick these at any size and especially growers out there who have a lot of zucchini pick those tiny pick them while the blossom is still stuck to the end that's oh, really? okay. oh yeah that's a surprise if you pick zucchini while the flower is still visible and in good shape you can just snap off that end and you can eat that right in the garden like candy it'll be super sweet Oh, fantastic. But as you know, if you turn your back on zucchini, they turn into baseball bats overnight. <laughs> so you got to keep your eye on the plant. you got to keep lifting up big leaves because they hide under there. But ag Correct. again, um, early peas, uh, string beans, any kind of summer squash, your mm -hmm. eggplant. If you can see it, you can eat it. And these small ones, these baby ones, these are a gourmet dream. These are the ones that cost four and five times as much um, in the supermarket. But instead of just waiting and harvesting a whole field at once, they harvest every day and they get four times the money for the crop. But they also have to pay a lot more for labor.
Am I appropriate to grow this in containers, or am I stressing it? Oh, no. Uh, I grow, this year I've grown all of my pepper plants in containers. I didn't do any eggplant this year. I was kind of rushed at planting time. Uh, but my uh, my choice would have been in containers. In the ground lately, in my raised beds, they're pretty much all tomatoes and uh, when I put my garlic in real soon. A lot of the other plants I've learned, it's just, it's easier to work with them if they're in containers, especially if the containers are big enough and you can keep up with the watering, or as in this year, it rains frequently enough that you don't have to worry about it. Correct. Okay. Yeah, they're great container plants. Mike, you've been very helpful, and I appreciate it. Well, even a broken watch is right twice a day, Don, you know? (laughs) 833-727-9588. Lisa, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Lisa. I'm happy to have you here. Where is here for you? Harleysville, Pennsylvania. I know where Harleysville is very well. What can we do for you? I'm having some problems with my cucumbers. Uh, they're actually bitter this year. And mm-hmm. so we have uh, raised beds, and we follow uh, your protocol and things that you recommend to oh. a team. Right? Oh, so it's, so it's my fault. Uh, yeah, It's probably. my fault, right? <laughs> okay. So we added two more raised beds this year and because I wanted to rotate the tomato crops gotcha. because there's been tomatoes in this one particular bed for, I'd say, about the last four years. Right, so, so you need to get out of there. This year, we put the, the cucumbers into that raised bed, and I companion planted with carrots. And the compu- uh, computers, right? The cucumbers uh, have been uh, great. The plants were great and prolific, and they're actually spilling over the side of the the box. And mm-hmm. um, the first few that I picked were fantastic, and they tasted great. But then I started experiencing them getting bitter. Okay. And you, oddly enough, I listened to your uh, your show last week about toxic squash syndrome. Right. And now I'm really worried about that. No. Uh, well, you didn't save your own seed, did you? No. These were seeds from two companies, both non-GMO. Uh, right. Now, I did uh, intermix the seeds. I hope that wasn't a problem. And no, uh, they're be. straight eights. Okay. So they're straight eights. And mm-hmm. is it, yes. that's the variety name. Is that the variety you've grown in previous years? Yes, in the ground, and they've never once been bitter. Okay. Well, a um, couple of things here. Cucumbers are naturally, quote, a bitter fruit. Um, the reason some varieties like Market More 76 and Straight 8 are preferred is they lack the, they don't have as much of the bitter gene. All cucumbers have a bitterness gene. Um, That's why cucumber beetles are such a problem. Cucumber beetles feed on the vines, and they actually take the bitterness from the vine into themselves. And most beneficial creatures, like birds, won't eat them. The only thing that will eat uh, a cucumber beetle is a toad. Toad's got no class, which is why I like to have a lot of them around. Uh, The bitterness gene can be expressed in higher amounts during periods of extreme stress. So even though you're growing in raised beds, this has been a roller coaster of a season. And Mm -hmm. our plants have been really stressed. I've found that the tomatoes and peppers are doing the best, but a lot of other plants are are showing signs of stress. So how big are you letting your cucumbers get? 
Well, I tried to keep them, I don't know, like maybe top out at about six inches. I think they taste best uh, six, seven inches when they are younger. But it seems like with this rain, one day I go out there and it's uh-huh. five inches, in them, and then the next day it's like 12 inches. Right. So, <laughs> but I, uh, no, but so there doesn't seem to be a correlation between the size and the bitterness. And some of them are fine, and some of them are bitter. Okay. Well, obviously, don't eat anything that's bitter, but it's not toxic squash syndrome. This is a clear case of that the plant is simply really stressed, and that bitterness gene is going to be more uh, more expressed. This is why a lot of farmers keep pigs. Pigs eat your mistakes. Pigs eat the pigs eat the stuff that you don't like. So if you get a bitter one, don't eat it. Um, I would urge you to pick them as small as possible. Otherwise, there's really not much we can do about the weather, except hope that these floods, these deluges, this biblical season is coming to an end. And I think you will find, um, you know, for instance, if you have a plant that's got nothing but bitter fruit on it, pull all the fruits off because we got plenty of time for new flowers and new cukes to develop. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can really add to the soil now. Did you use any kind of eggshells or any kind of calcium earlier in the season? I, did. I always uh, put some crushed eggshells in the uh, planting hole. Okay. Uh, we make our own compost. We have our own vermiculture bins. Oh, like, don't you love uh, your worms? Oh, I love them. That's, uh, I call them team squirm. Yeah, and, uh, and don't forget, they won't care if the fruit is bitter. Yeah, they don't seem to care about anything. Yeah, yeah. and just making more worm poop. Yeah, but uh, but no, I did. Uh, I do perlite in there to make it nice and light. And right. we always start the season with beneficial nematodes. Oh. so we're really really following your advice. And again, so it's I, my fault. Yeah, um, just blame <laughs> Mike. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but so how? I mean, I actually threw out fifty cucumbers this weekend because I have a lot of cucumbers coming, and I was concerned after hearing that toxic squash syndrome uh thing and i would uh, not i would not advise you eating the bitter cucumbers at all Mm -hmm. you know maybe there's some old farmer's trick of sucking some of the bitterness out but if something you know that's you know um we're going to have an interview about that i got a great email from a guy at the smithsonian who says this goes back to the age of the mastrodons and he's going to explain you know, how this syndrome developed in, in like the Ice Age with cave bears and giant sloths and stuff like that. I can't wait. Wow. Um, but in the meantime, you know, always remember that a conventional farmer or even an organic farmer, once they harvest 55% of what they planted successfully, they're in the black. You know, nobody's ever going to get every plant to be perfect during any season. But mm-hmm. I would urge you, especially if the, you know, use the 50% rule. If 50% of the fruits on the plant right now are bitter, take all the fruits off all the plants. And if the weather lightens up, there's no reason the bitterness should continue. That develops as the actual fruit develops. Okay. Because I thought to myself, you know, I want to pickle these. And if it was, in fact, the squash syndrome, if I tasted each one just to see if it was okay, I'd probably end up with it. So I'll do, 
yeah, uh, even though toxic squash syndrome sounds like a better name for a band. Yeah, it uh, does. <laughs> but, uh, all right, well, very good. And so I don't have to worry about my soil then being... Uh, no, addicted. no, there's nothing in the soil, and it sounds like you're doing everything right. You know, this is, you know, farm, the expression lose the farm. You know, you get a couple of bad years in a row, you can't pay your mortgage. You know, gardening is not for the faint of heart. You know, if, if if you want guaranteed success, become a woodworker and get good at it. But gardening is always liable to acts of nature. But again, we still got a lot of growing season left. So if you want to play the odds that I would play, if this were happening to me, I'd pull everything off and let them reflower and see what happens. And again, pick them small. Excellent. Sounds great. Thank all you right. So much. I'm sorry about your problems, and I, I take full blame. It's all my fault, you know. All right. All right. Well, you can take credit for all the good stuff that happens, too. All right. You take care. Good luck. Thank you. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody out there to pick your ripe tomatoes promptly, but be patient with your peppers. All peppers, sweet and or hot, will ripen to a beautiful hue of red, yellow, or orange, dramatically improving their flavor and nutrition. But don't go putting the pruners away just yet because we'll be right back to try and stop your squirrels and hear the Ice Age origin of the bitter squash that can make you seriously sick. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute, hosting a Fall on the Farm event on Saturday and Sunday, September 21st and 22nd. Visitors can enjoy organic apple and pumpkin picking, wagon tours, food vendors, live music, and more. Details at RodaleInstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we are going to help you try and stymie those evil squirrels from taking a bite out of every one of your tomatoes. We're also going to take more of your fabulous phone calls. But now it's time for a very special interview about the topic of the month the bitter squash. I am extremely excited to welcome our very special guest today, Dr. Logan Kistler from the Smithsonian Institution's Natural Museum of Natural History. Dr. Kistler is curator of archaeobotany, is that correct? So far so good. And archaeogenomics? You've got it. In the Department of Anthropology. Yay, I got through that. Uh, Dr. Kistler got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago about the uh, toxic squash syndrome that has taken over the message boards uh, of our show. Very interesting. And you appealed to me on my most basic childhood level. Now, you didn't bring in dinosaurs, but you did bring in, is it woolly mammoths or mastodons? Uh, mastodons are most of what we'll be talking about. Okay, and cave bears and the giant sloth and um, probably That's not right. a saber-toothed tiger because they were carnivores. 
Exactly. All those big herbivores that were wandering around the landscape during the last ice age. Which really, I mean, and that's one thing that appealed to me as a child. I had two separate play areas. I had all my big rubber dinosaurs. And then I had the one with the caveman with the saber-toothed tiger and the woolly mammoths and everything like that. And of course, being like 10 years old, sometimes the dinosaurs would escape and go and ravage the, uh, the caveman. <laughs> but historical accuracy, nonetheless, the Ice Age, these amazing creatures that have long been extinct, this is only 10,000 years ago, right? That's right. Yeah, prior to about 10, 12,000 years ago, in the Americas, in both North and South America, there were woolly mammoths, there were mastodons, there were giant ground sloths that would stand as high as your house. Uh, no, 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 are you serious? Yeah. Oh, man, can we go back? I mean, I promise <laughs> not to step on any butterflies or anything. They are evolutionary fit for the landscape in which they lived. Um, there were the correct food sources, the right ecosystems, um, the right combination of predators to keep populations in check. And for whatever reason, this was a landscape that was just conducive to having a lot of large herbivores around. So now when you emailed me, you connected this to the toxic squash syndrome which all started with a phone call from a woman who got very ill after she ate a, bi a bitter-tasting zucchini that was grown in a community garden. And we did just a tiniest bit of research and found that this syndrome can be caused by cross-pollination or plant stress. Then, over time, we've heard, did I, did I send you the email we got from England? You did. Yeah, of a guy who got it, and he got it in his, quote, allotment, which is a community garden over there. And then somebody sent me a medical report of two French women who ate a bitter cucumber and their hair fell out. That's right, and I've heard examples as well in New Zealand and in Germany. So what's going on here? So the bitterness in these squashes, uh, to, to understand that, we have to push back to what this plant looked like before it was a pumpkin or a squash uh, or something much more familiar to us now. And so the wild forms of these plants, they're... they're native to the Americas, um, and, and the, the fruits are maybe just a couple inches in diameter. They're very tough. Um, they have a very thick, heavy rind, and they taste awful. I mean, they're intensely bitter um, fruits. And that bitterness, I think as you mentioned in, in the show a couple weeks ago, that bitterness signals toxicity. That's an evolutionary signal to us to spit that thing out so that we don't get sick um, or have really serious problems. And so in this wild plant that's so intensely bitter, uh, what that is is an adaptation to keep uh, herbivores and, and omnivores, including humans, from eating and destroying those seeds. So what they, the plant sort of wants uh, to do is disperse its seeds, but it's not going to let humans and other human-sized animals do it. So I, I've actually, we've planted experimental fields of this stuff for various research, and what happens is the vines dry out uh, and die, and the fruits just kind of sit there. Okay, um, so that's, uh, this is a, a caveman's baseball. This is the first baseball. That's about the measure of it, yep. And so they, the, the fruits just sit on the surface. They don't naturally disperse their seeds at all. And that sort of leads a person to ask how these things were successful without any sort of disperser for their seeds. And that's where we can look to archaeology and paleontology to start to answer those questions. Um, so in Florida, there are actually uh, deposits of mastodon dung. And they, they go back about 30,000 years. 
And if you look in those, they're well-preserved. They're in springs in Florida um, where there's no bacteria to break them down. If you look in those dung deposits that are 30,000 years old, what do you find but a lot of squash seeds? Hmm. So it seems like, in this case, these, these wild plants, and this is well before people were in this part of the Americas, these plants were being dispersed by these large herbivores. And so this, this giant elephant-like creature eats the, eats the gourds, eats the squash, and uh, is it just a creature with no class? It doesn't care about the bitterness? It's too, it's too big to be toxified? Yeah, so this is the question, is if these things are so unpalatable to us, and we spit them out instantly, um, or we should, certainly, because they're, they're, they're very bitter, um, how can mastodons be tolerating these? And so uh, what it turns out to be the case is if you look at all of the genomes of all the mammals that are available, so a genome is a collection of all the genes. It sort of describes the biology of the organism at a fundamental level. And if you look at all the genomes, there's a specific gene uh, across all mammals and including in, uh, in some birds and fish as well um, that allows us to taste bitter compounds. And the more copies of this gene you have, the more acutely you taste bitter compounds. Humans have either 24 or 25 functional copies, and the difference between those is part of the difference between people who like black coffee um, and people who don't, I was example. just I was just going to say, I mean, because... Technically, coffee is something that is almost warning us not to drink it with its taste. But um, like with many people, I couldn't be, I'd be without it. Exactly. And, and it's chemicals. Not only that, it's taste, but caffeine is meant to be a deterrent. But uh, we humans have taken a little bit of a different path with <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> and so... The, the number of, of these genes varies between only about six copies in mammals to about 45 copies. Um, and it turns out there's a, a huge association with body size. So that the smaller mammals, uh, things like mice and shrews and, and small primates, those have a lot of copies. And that's because as they're foraging and they're you know, eating a lot of different wild foods, they need to be able to detect even small amounts of toxins because uh, a small amount of a toxic substance in their diet could be really problematic. They have quick metabolisms, um, and it could be very quickly toxic. If you look at instead of something like uh, an African elephant, it's eating maybe 100 pounds of vegetation a day, that thing can't afford to be a picky eater. It really needs to be able to sort of vacuum up all the vegetation that it encounters. And, and not only can it not afford to be a picky eater, but it doesn't help the elephant to be able to perceive every single slightly toxic compound in the environment because it's eating so much it kind of gets lost in the wash. And so what we found is actually that, that large mammals have a, a much uh, sort of depressed ability to taste bitter compounds compared with small ones. So when the mastodons disappeared about 10 to 12,000 years ago through a combination of, of human activities and climate change, um, what the disappearance of the large herbivores left were a lot of mammals that couldn't uh, handle the bitter taste of the wild squashes. Right. Uh, theoretically, they, they would go extinct with, uh, with the mammals. They were certainly under that threat in some places, yeah. And in some cases, actually, um, we don't know what the wild type of some of the species of squashes is. So take butternut squash, for example. Mm -hmm. That's a species called Cucurbita moschata. Right. And we have archaeological examples of that in South America, in Central America, in Mexico. 
Um, but we don't actually have a wild species for that. People have looked. People have gone on expeditions to try and find it, and it doesn't seem to exist. Likewise, the, the wild progenitor of things like zucchini and new jack-o'-lantern pumpkins, um, some of our summer and winter squashes, people have looked for that. That shows up about 10,000 years ago in Mexico in archaeological sites. But again, the wild type doesn't seem to be out there anymore. So some of these populations do look like they actually went extinct along with these large dispersers. So what remained um, that didn't go extinct and that looked very different and obviously tasted very different 10,000 years ago? Yeah, so as the, as the large mammals are disappearing, what's happening is the squashes are losing their disperser, but they're also changing the habitat. Um, large mammals, things like you know, sort of elephant-sized herbivores, they eat so much and they tromp so much that they really affect the landscape. Right. And what they do is create all these disturbed habitats. And plants that we call weeds, not in a gardening sense, but in a botanical sense, are plants that can take advantage of those disturbed habitats. And squash is one of those weedy plants. So as the mastodons and the, and the other larger herbivores disappeared, not only did the disperser of the squash disappear, but the habitat for the squash disappeared. But at the same time, there was another major ecological player sort of coming onto the landscape, and that was humans. Humans also disturb the landscape. We clear areas for building houses. We clear areas um, for hunting and management. And so we have effects on, on the landscape that are not so different from the effects of large herbivores. And in doing that, we create a place, we create a niche in which these squashes can grow. And so it seems like what happened was these wild squashes, as the landscape was changing, kind of cozied up to humans and started this new evolutionary relationship. But they would have had to lose their bitterness, wouldn't they? Exactly right. So they were bitter and unpalatable and toxic. And so in order to survive and thrive in this new environment with humans, they had to be appealing to humans. They had to be in a symbiotic relationship with humans. Either and that or that. the people just threw them at each other, you know. <laughs> hey, get off my land. Get off my lawn, you kids. We don't know how people started using these exactly. It's a little bit of a black box. But we do know, um, for example, in Florida, we have um, early squashes that have fishnet um, sort of woven around them. So you can use them as fishnet floats, for example. Oh. So maybe it isn't for food that people are first using these. Some of the seeds are a little less bitter than some of the flesh, so that might be a way they could start using it. Right. But Lufa no gourds, you... right? Lufa gourds I don't think ever taste good, but they become very useful after they've completely ripen. Yeah, that's right. And so there are other ways. The bottle gourd, for example, is a close relative. That was domesticated uh, on several different occasions all over the world, um, in the Americas, in Africa, and in Asia, because it's such a useful plant. And yet... They never rot. I have birdhouse gourds and dipper gourds in my house that I grew with my kids 30 years ago. So cucumbers, zucchinis, watermelons, pumpkins, bottle gourds, these are, of course, all part of this one family. Um, the, the, the Gordon squash family, and most of the wild types have this bitterness um, and, and this toxicity. It now, is common. Let throughout. me interrupt you just for where are these wild types? Um, they are all over the world. The wild squashes are specifically in the Americas. Wild watermelons are in North Africa. <laughs> wild cucumbers are in, in South Asia. Um, they are they're all over the place. And in fact, one of the characteristics of these plants is that they can float over really long distances. Oh. And so 
Bottlebirds, for example, they are native to Africa, uh, but humans, it seems like, carried them into Asia, and then they actually floated across the Atlantic um, to get to the Americas. So that's how this, this group of, of plants can be so sort of so cosmopolitan, so all over the place. I, that's my new favorite phrase, uh, wild watermelon. I, <laughs> I, I love that. Now, is this a plant that's growing in the margins does it does it suddenly appear in a, in a field from uh, from seed that got cross-pollinated i mean it depends uh, quite a bit on the species and quite a bit on the specific lineage. Um, I don't know a whole lot about the wild watermelons and the wild cucumbers um, and melons, but, but certainly the squashes tend to like sort of disturbed areas. They like the fence rows, the field edges, the medians of, of highways and and similar to that, um, so in the areas where they uh, where they occur naturally, they're they're looking for those weedy areas, those disturbed habitats. But in these cases, particularly your caller, I think was in eastern Pennsylvania, so there's no wild squash there. Um, certainly, someone in the UK or or in France, there's no wild squash there. And so there are other mechanisms that we can think about in terms of how you could sometimes get these bitter fruits on what you think should be a well-behaved, um, perfectly domesticated vine. What you uh, have to think about is that sort of all of the wild types are bitter. Most of the domestic types are no longer bitter, but they haven't necessarily lost their ability to become bitter. They've just kind of turned it down. That's, a, um, that's an excellent point. Something I forget is a plant's ability to generate its own insecticide if it's under attack, uh, that it can become bitter. You know, sweet corn can actually send out some kind of a pheromone that attracts beneficial insects that lay their eggs in the caterpillars um, attacking the sweet corn. So yeah, squash under attack, of course it's going to become bitter, right? It wants to protect its seeds. It, it definitely can. It definitely can. And there are also symbiotic relationships with other organisms. So there are some squash beetles, for example, that will attack a squash and, and trigger this response. And then the males, when they fertilize the eggs, actually coat the eggs in the bitter compound and make the eggs unpalatable to any potential egg predators. And so other um, sort of aspects of, of the animal kingdom can take advantage of, of this response. Do you have any displays uh, showing these, uh, the fruits, at, at the smithy or anything like that? Uh, I'm not sure we do right at this moment. Because right now, I mean, we're talking it up. Everybody's talking about bitter squash. This would be, um, can't, you, can't, can't you throw a couple under the mastrodons or something in the, in the dioramas? <laughs> well, you know? We can't show you the bitter squashes right now, but we can definitely show you the mastodons and the ground sloths. We just opened our new fossil hall, and certainly for anyone in the D.C. area, um, of course, it's free admission, as always. We, we would love for you to come by and see all of the big animals responsible for um, the evolution of these things. Amazing. Our guest has been Dr. Logan Kistler from the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., curator of archaeobotany and archaeogenomics. Dr. Kistler, thank you so much for getting a hold of us and telling us this fascinating story. And the last thing, of course, is... If you taste something in the squash family and it's bitter, you walk away, Renee. That's exactly right. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Oh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and alert listeners who need to improve or just plain replace a cool season lawn of fescue and or bluegrass that the time to do so is now. The soil temperature is perfect for speedy germination, and there's plenty of time for the grass to grow big and strong before winter. 
and seeding does not work well in the spring. But don't go selecting your winter seed just yet because we'll be right back to tackle your squirrel problems and take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we're going to tackle those evil squirrels who are trying to eat your tomatoes and tree fruits for you. We're also going to take more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Bruce, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello there. Hello, Bruce. How are you? I'm calling here from uh, Kunkeltown, Pennsylvania. Okay, very good. Kunkeltown. Do you know the original? Yeah. Do you know the original? We're in the southern Poconos. We're about 15 miles in from Delaware, 30 from the Gap. Okay, very good. Uh, A very unusual region. What can we do you for? Well, in this region, everybody has well water, and the water is full of lead. (gasps) And my question is this, since it's uh, kind of expensive to go and get the lead out of the water for doing large-scale watering, like a garden, I'm curious if I'm watering my tomato plant with this highly leaded well water, is the lead going to show up in the tomatoes? Boy, lead is uh, a kind of a notorious element in, in that it does... It does travel. Um, the biggest danger, I'll tell you right right now, is to you. And I don't mean your indoor water. I mean um, the lead will accumulate in the soil. It will be in the air if you're using an impact sprinkler. What do you do to make your interior water safe? Uh, we don't drink it. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, that's one way to get around it. What, what, what do you do? Just get bottled water delivered? Bottled water, that's it. Get it from the store and hope that they're not just getting it from the tap. Yeah, really. Um, now, in terms of your house, so you're not drinking it, but you are cooking with it and you're showering in it, right? Well, not cooking with it. We use the bottled water, but oh, showering with it, yeah. Because uh, in this area, there's a lot of radon, too. Oh, and man. I can only presume that this whole area, there must be a bed of uranium down in the ground which is where all this is coming from. Right, because eventually it'll transmute to lead. Um, So one thing first I want you to do is investigate a shower filter. Um, These are very inexpensive, and you can get them. Uh, There were studies done back when I was a medical reporter uh, that said there was a real danger of elevating your own body's lead levels by showering in water that was high in lead. Uh, because you can inhale the lead very right. easily. So these shower filters are very inexpensive. You know, you take off uh, whatever your shower head is, you screw this filter on, and then you screw the shower head back in. And it's just a, a simple carbon filter, but it'll take most of the lead out, and you won't have to worry about it. And I realize this isn't directly answering your question, but I would also urge you to consider getting a reverse osmosis filter 
underneath your kitchen sink. They're not right. that. Ex- that's that's something we're looking into. It's they're only about two hundred bucks. Uh, yeah, you know, the GE smart water system is available everywhere, and it's a real peace of mind. And I think you'll probably do better in the long run. I think it'll be lower cost, and you won't be hauling all those big jugs of water back and forth. Right. And so the same thing outdoors, I would think it would be a good investment for you just to get a simple carbon filter that you can put onto your outdoor water faucet as if it was an indoor uh, water faucet, you know, just like, oh, I forget the, the name now, but they were one of the first water filters to come out. Remember, they would attach to your uh, to your like kitchen. A, yeah, like a water pick. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I I think it would be worth the investment. I'm not sure about the risk of lead being in the tomatoes. Um, I think it's probably low. But the risk to you working in the soil and even, um, you know, getting getting the lead on the outside of the tomatoes if you use an impact sprinkler, I think it would be well worth your time. Because, you know, it's not like kryptonite. You know, it's not like we're going to be exposed to lead and we're going to turn green and know something bad is happening. You know, exposure to lead and high lead levels simply mean you're not as smart as you should be at this yeah, age. I think maybe it might be a help to where Alzheimer's might be kicking in from. Well, and it's predisposed to something like that. Well, no, or, I mean, uh, with lead, you don't have to be predisposed. It's a pretty straightforward equation. And right. but as you said, you're retired. I'm an elderly geezer. Um, I think we need to be much more careful about exposure to these heavy metals um, at our age. Although you know, obviously, it's devastating to children because they lose brain capacity for the rest of their life. So I would say, uh, definitely filter your shower water. Definitely filter your garden water. You know, luckily we've gotten so much rain irrigation hasn't right. been much of a problem this year uh but your alternative should we be coming up to a dry year you could always install a rain barrel outside your house collect the Absolutely. rain that comes down off your roof make sure it's elevated make sure it's up on cinder blocks or something else to keep it high enough that you don't need a pump that you can just turn the spigot at the bottom and the water uh, gravity takes it to where you want it yeah you see uh, you're talking about the lead like with the shower I was concerned with radon. Of course, now you're aerating that water. It's hot. Mm-hmm. You're probably making the radon mad on top of it all. <laughs> and you've got your head a foot away from where it's coming out the uh, the shower head. Well, it is. Breathing it, in that gas. Radon is tough. If you have high levels, I hope you have it vented to the outside from your basement. Right, down there in the basement, yeah. Yeah, so the the idea is, you know, it it's... It, you know, you're you're in a world of trouble. No, uh, everything, everything, <laughs> there is. yeah, everything you can filter, uh, you should filter. It's it's well worth the investment. And I think you'll be so happy with a reverse osmosis unit. I've I installed one myself in my home uh, 35 years ago, and I've replaced it a couple of times since that, just to keep all the tubing clean and everything like that. And People rave about the taste and purity of our water. How long do you go before we, before you change out the filters? Um, you cha- there's a, a real reverse osmosis filter. will bring the water through a charcoal filter. Um, 
then it'll take it through the reverse osmosis filter. Then it'll go into a holding tank. When it comes out of the holding tank, the holding tank is like um, twice as big as your head. So it's not, it's not huge, um, okay. unless, you, unless you have a really huge head. Um, and then when, it, when the water comes out of the tank, it goes through a different charcoal filter to kind of freshen it up. So right. those charcoal filters get changed twice a year. Uh, the reverse osmosis filter lasts for five years. Ah, okay. So it's it's a really good deal. I mean, and it's better than than all this plastic piling up. And you know, depending on the way the water was stored, some of these plastics are not the best way to transport water. But, right. You know, you take you take over it yourself, and I think you'll gain gain a sense of control too. All right. All right, man. All right. I thank you, sir. All right. Well, uh, good luck to you. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. As promised, it's time for the question of the week, evicting evil squirrels. Mary in Northeast Philly writes, what do you think of this idea to protect tomatoes from squirrels? Take a plastic shopping bag, snip off the bottom corners to make drain holes, cut a viewing slit in the side of the bag, hang the bag over a group of tomatoes, tying the handles to the branch of the plant holding the tomatoes. Is there a danger of rot here? Well, that was my first thought, Murray, that rainwater would collect inside the bags. It would also get really humid in there, and any direct sun that hits the bags would turn them into little microwaves and ruin these very temperature-sensitive fruits. I also suspect that the long-tailed servants of Satan would simply rip the bags to shreds to get at the tomatoes. There is some merit, however, in this basic concept. Growers of high-end fruits designed to be placed in fancy boxes and given as gifts will often bag their fruits to protect them from direct sunlight, which can call sun scald and cat facing, and attack by insects and birds. The ones I've seen in the field have been paper, specifically the classic brown paper lunch bag stapled over the fruits. Much too labor intensive for my money, but it's a better option than using plastic. We also heard from Matthew in Ontario, Canada, who writes, this is not really a question. It is a comment on squirrels and fruit trees. I think that I've tried everything possible over the years to keep squirrels at bay. This year, I went to a craft store and bought a bag full of plastic eyes. I had some old sheepskins sitting around, glued the eyes around the edges in pairs, then draped the sheepskins over the branches. My pears are progressing well for the first time ever. I've also been spraying the trees every few weeks with a mixture of egg, milk, water, and a few drops of dishwashing detergent. Wow, Halloween fruit trees. That's a spooky, creepy image there, Matt. I love it. I was confused, however, by your reference to that egg recipe. The most effective deer repellents, which work on other animals as well, are made with rotten eggs. Labels use the term putrescent egg solids because that sounds so much better. But I can't see a regular homeowner actually handling such nasty stuff and or spraying it on fruit. 
So I emailed Matthew back and asked if he was using rotten eggs or fresh ones. Matt replies, the eggs are fresh. The soap emulsifies everything when I blend it. I reasoned that if critters don't like blood meal, then perhaps other animal products like eggs and milk would work. I think, however, it's the plastic eyeballs that are actually keeping the squirrels at bay. Previously, I've tried human hair, shiny aluminum plates, rubber snakes, mothballs, etc. They all worked for a couple of days. This new tactic, however, has the squirrels away for a solid month now. I'm with you on the eyeballs, Matt. The milk and eggs, I think you should use them to make pancakes instead. And I have to chastise you and warn everybody out there to stay away from mothballs. I know they're a staple of the home remedy style of gardening, but they are one of the most toxic substances you can buy. Inhaling their fumes can cause dizziness and confusion, kidney cancer in the long run as well. Remember, if you can smell a chemical, it's getting into your bloodstream. I'm amazed that these things are still available for sale. Now, evil squirrels are smart, acrobatic, and have a lot of time on their hands to torment gardeners. And one of their favorite tricks is to take a single bite out of every tomato. I don't think that squirrels even like tomatoes. They just like to torment us. So here's my plan to fight these garden-ravaging menaces. First, don't feed seed to birds. If you have a bird feeder up, it'll attract every evil squirrel in the area. And then they'll look around for other mischief to get into. Feeding birds in the summer is also foolish. Just give them fresh water and they'll eat your garden pests instead of getting filled up on bird seed. Here's another one. Grow your tomatoes inside cages of welded wire animal fencing that I always recommend anyway. Six linear feet will give you a cage about two feet in diameter once you roll it up into a cylinder. Make a lid out of more of the wire and attach it with twist ties. If the squirrels learn how to work the twist ties, I give up. I really like Matthew's creepy creation, so be sure to stock up on spooky eyes this Halloween. And motion-activated sprinklers are a great way to defend a defined area, like a raised bed garden or a row of fruit trees. You hook one of these battery-operated devices up to your garden hose, and it comes alive and shoots a stream of water when it senses motion in the area being protected. Yes, you will forget it's there, and you will get soaked one morning. But you'll also get tomatoes. I have long been suspicious of the power of, quote, human hair to repel animals. But dog hair is another matter. Dogs hate squirrels, and squirrels hate dogs. Small-scale growers in the Netherlands have found a mulch of dog fur to be very effective at protecting tulips, which are squirrel candy. And dog fur actually makes a very good mulch, and the dog probably needed to be brushed. Well, that sure was some good advice about fighting off the furriest foe of them all, now wasn't it? Luckily, you can read these instructions over at your leisure, or your leisure, because the Question of the Week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still, and will forever be, youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. 
Yikes. My producer is threatening to take the tops off my tomato cages if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired. You're poor. You're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. If you don't want to play Scrabble with your keyboard, just check our website. You'll find all of this contact information, answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by Harold and Nancy McGrath. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tierra Waring Tavia Mint is our associate producer of Production Association. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. For Aston Harry, director, that would be Javier Diaz. Producer of the show is I'm a Not Here. Occasional cameraman is Jeff Frederick. Zach the Tack Wisniewski is in the house. Our beloved CEO, Tim Fallon, is late for three meetings and is still not our executive producer. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Face front, true believers. Put on your anti-squirrel gear. Be vigilant, and you'll be making tomato sauce in September. Maybe some squirrel stew, too. And do whatever you want with them big zucchinis. Just don't give them to me, and I will be back to see you again next week. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? Ready? Go get it, boy. That's a good boy. Drop it. Drop it. Good boy. Good boy. Loyal partners. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. Can you really create an indoor greenhouse over the winter? I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, we'll explain how you can grow your own fresh herbs in the middle of a blizzard. Plus your fabulous phone call, that's on the next You Bet Your Garden.